The following episode contains material of a graphic nature and coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. Did you miss me, Raj? Was it ever anyone else? You're very pretty. Beauty. We don't want you touching me ever again. Where's the blood from, Mr. Christie? I don't think you killed her. You could hang for this. Close your eyes. What? Close your eyes. Are you deaf? Close your eyes. The defendant's commission of these four murders over a 10-day period is one of the worst killing sprees in the history of this state. Skin them sometimes. Slip them, slip them all the way open. I'm here looking for the spirits of anybody that still remains. I have a device in my hand. If you would like to talk to it, please come forward. Tell me your story. Maybe I should have killed four or five hundred people, then I would have felt better. Then when I felt like I really offered society something. You are listening to Serial Spirits, the podcast. guys welcome back to another episode of serial spirits the podcast it is me your host brendan shea and with me as always is my beautiful lovely co-host that was a very casey Kasem opening there Shay. you know what's weird that you said that <laughs> that is the weirdest thing that you said that because guess like yesterday i was at work not yesterday friday it was friday i was at work i was listening to 48 hours on pod on the podcasting forum right and the one of the only stories I listened to was about the battle about Casey Kasem after he died. Really? Yeah. It's a weird one. And it's a really weird story. And if you don't know the story about Casey Kasem, yeah, it's you need to go check it out. Well, that was it's just nuts. a very Casey Kasem. That's where Kasem you brought it up. Oh, man. Intro. Ooh. I am not Casey Kasem. I am Annie Weebs. So it's good to see you, Shea Bay. It's good to see you too. How are you <laughs> doing today? You know what? I am tired. We are finally starting back to work. And living like real humans again. And I forgot how exhausting it is to be a real life human. And then come home and be a full-time mom too. Yeah, it's really exhausting. But we have this awesome story that we want to bring this you guys. This one's creepy. And this it's is another weird. one I heard on a podcast a while ago. And this story really intrigued me because, I don't know, it, t- it, it happened a long time ago. But it ties into some of the modern things that are going on now. Especially with false 
accusations. Right. False confessions. So, dun, dun, dun. Yeah. But, but before we do that, yeah. We have a new five-star five review. Star Shay, would you like to read it? I will read it. I will read it right now. It's so amazing when you get on iTunes and you can see that you have a new review. And I mean, we have, I think, 35 ratings of whatever, and they're all five stars. And man, that just makes me feel so incredibly good that we're doing something entertaining for you guys. We love it. I mean, we love doing this show and it makes <laughs> us feel really good when you guys reach out and tell us like you love it too. When you open iTunes and you see that new five star written review, it's kind of like Christmas morning for a podcaster because you love, you do, we do this for you guys. And so if you enjoy Serial Spirits podcast and you would feel compelled to leave a five-star review, please feel free to do so because that actually helps other people find our podcast. It puts us in uh, more rotations. So we are so grateful for every single review that we get from you guys. So this one is from Kelly H13 and it's titled Refreshing, kind of like that crisp PBR you crack open on a hot day when you're getting in the pool. Refreshing. I was always a creepy kid growing up, just like you, Annie. You're a a creepy kid. You call yourself a creepy kid. Right. It's kind of weird that she said that too. Mm -hmm. I was always a creepy kid growing up. This podcast covers all my interests and introduced me to many more. The music is terrific and the host voices are so clear. The natural chemistry of the hosts and their storytelling abilities make the show. I look forward to new shows each week. They have made quarantine and the daily drives to prison a bit easier. Now I'm hoping you actually mean you're driving to prison while you're working. But if not, maybe your home is a prison and you're stuck there on quarantine. I don't know. But thank you, Kelly H., so much for that five-star review. It means the world to us. You're the best. While we're talking about five-star review, we also want to give a shout-out to our patrons this month, Bethany Hammontree and Cool Scout 09. Thank you so much for being a patron of Paranormal Warehouse and Serial Spirits, the podcast. So, Annie, do you have your bags packed? I've packed my bags. You got your plane ticket. I know. I'm ready to go. I know the quarantine stuff is, is about over, and they're still coronavirus out there but your bags are packed you're ready to go you got your plane ticket because we're traveling to jolly old england to today. the jolly old uk today is where we're going for this story shay and we're talking about john christie a notorious serial killer that man this story is just gonna it's gonna blow your minds so sit back and enjoy episode 40 the rillington place strangler Christie was a war reserve at Harrow Road Police Station. He was dismissed from the job for interfering with women in the canteen there. John Reginald Halliday Christie walked away from Ten Rillington Place somewhere about March the 19th, 1953, and he left behind a tomb. A man took up residence four days later, Beresford Brown, pulled back the paper on the corner of a door in the kitchen. And there he saw the body of a woman sitting on a pile of ashes. That was Hectorina McLennan. When they had a good look at it, behind that was a Miss Maloney, behind that was a Miss Nelson. All of them had been strangled. All of them had evidence of carbon monoxide poisoning. And all of them had evidence of sexual intercourse at the time of death, shortly before or shortly afterwards. Women came to Christie's house at Ten Rillington Place for the purpose of him carrying out abortions. But of course, he was a necrophiliac. 
There is little doubt that he had intercourse with them. Under the floorboards in the front room, the body of Mrs. Christie. In the garden, they started to dig. They found the remains of Miss Ruth first. There's the thoracic vertebrae first, with the root growing through it. And also the remains of Miss Muriel Edith. They disappeared in 43 and 44, respectively. From a very clever piece of forensic patching, they identified the teeth from dental records. They'd been shown as missing persons. Uh, they, were now, they were now well on the trail of this uh, man. He had disappeared. He was seen down at Putney Bridge and he was arrested there by a PC ledger and taken into the police station. I noticed Christie facing this way up the river and across the road and uh, interrogated him. I asked him what he was doing and uh, he said he was looking for work. And I asked him then his name and address and he gave me a false name and address in Notting Hill. I smelt a rat immediately then when he said Notting Hill because that's yeah. where the murders took place. That's right. So uh, I asked him to take his hat off, which he did, and in his hair was uh, some little leaves and uh, twigs. John Christie, known to his friends and family as Reg, was an English serial killer who claimed at least eight lives during the 1940s and 1950s just outside of London his murders sparking one of the biggest controversies in British crime history. Born in 1899 near Halifax, Christie was number six of a family of seven children. Christie claimed that his father was a difficult man who displayed little affection for him and punished him at the drop of a hat. His mother, by his accounts, would sometimes display affection and at other times bully him like his siblings did. Christie's schoolmates called him, quote, a queer lad, who quietly kept to himself. Christie excelled in math, had a high IQ, and joined numerous school clubs during the course of his education. But under the pressure of the constant bullying from his family and schoolmates, he left school at age 15 to join the British Army during World War I. In 1918, he was sent to France to serve as a signalman and was permanently injured during a mustard gas attack. Christie claimed that the attack left him blind and mute for more than three years and caused a lifelong inability to speak above a loud whisper. But those were just Christie's claims. Later evaluations of his mental and physical states showed that Christie actually might have been suffering from a borderline personality disorder that caused him to fake or exaggerate some illnesses. On top of his self-proclaimed war injuries, Christie suffered from another disability, impotence. He claimed that while in school, his schoolmates nicknamed him, quote, Can't Do It Christie, a problem that followed him into adulthood. Christie claimed the only time he could perform intimately was when he was with a prostitute. Christie married Ethel Simpson in 1920, but his difficulties with impotence lingered, and as a result, Christie continued to visit prostitutes. Adding to their marital problems were Christie's numerous short stints in jail beginning in 1921. Christie was convicted of multiple counts of larceny, obtaining money under false pretenses, and violent conduct, including assaulting a woman with a cricket bat while working as a lorry driver. In 1934, after being released from prison on parole, Christie and his wife Ethel reconciled, although he continued to visit prostitutes. In 1937, 
Christy and Ethel moved into a flat at Rillington Place in a run-down, destitute area of London. The apartments had no running water, shared one outside bathroom, and were situated so closely to the train tracks that the noise was deafening. At the beginning of World War II, Christy applied and was accepted to the War Reserve Police, his criminal background overlooked. Christy began having an affair with a co-worker named Gladys Jones, which persisted until her husband came home from war in 1943. It was the same year that Christy would commit his first murder. Ruth First, a 21-year-old Austrian native, occasionally engaged in prostitution as a means of survival. On August 24, 1943, Christy invited Ruth back to his apartment to engage in sex while Ethel was away visiting family. He then strangled Ruth, hid her body under the floorboards of their apartment, and buried her in the building's community garden the next day. Christie's second victim came in October 1944. He left his job as a constable and began working at a radio factory where he met 32-year-old Muriel Edie. Edie suffered from chronic bronchitis, and Christie claimed that he had a cure for it. Christie invited Muriel back to his apartment to receive his mixture of inhalant medicine. What Muriel didn't know was that Christie had actually concocted a mixture of carbon dioxide and ethanol gas, which Muriel inhaled through a tube. Once unconscious, Christie raped and strangled her and then buried her in the garden next to Ruth. In 1948, Christie found his next victims, which would later spark a national controversy. Timothy Evans and his wife Beryl moved into the top flat of Rillington Place. Timothy had a low IQ and a violent temper and found it difficult to keep a job. When Beryl became pregnant, the couple feared they could not care for another child, as they already had a one-year-old daughter, Geraldine. Christy, knowing the couple was struggling, claimed that he had knowledge of how to do an abortion and offered his assistance in the matter. Christy rendered Beryl unconscious and then strangled her. For unknown reasons, Christy then also strangled little Geraldine to death. During the process of her murder, Beryl gave birth to a tiny baby boy, believed to be about 16 weeks gestation. In 1949, Timothy could bear his conscience no longer and went to the police, claiming that Christy had murdered his entire family during a botched abortion. He led police to the bodies of all three, buried in an outdoor wash house. But police weren't buying Timothy's story, and under intense questioning, Timothy cracked and claimed that he had, in fact, murdered his entire family. He quickly recanted his confession, but it was too little too late. On January 11, 1950, Timothy was put on trial for the murder of his daughter, the prosecution deciding not to pursue additional charges for the murders of his wife and unborn child. And who was the prosecution's star witness? None other than John Christie himself, who claimed that Timothy was an abusive man and the couple fought constantly. Timothy was found guilty and sentenced to death. His appeals were swiftly denied and Timothy was hanged on March 9, 1950, a mere two months after his murder conviction. So here we go. We start down this weird, dark road, okay? And basically, he 
like you said, under pressure cracked. And he actually gave a confession which was really, really damning for him because he said that he killed his wife after they fought. And then he fed the baby, Geraldine, sat her down or whatever, then got really drunk, then woke up the next morning and then strangled his infant daughter and then put them both in the in the wash house outside and buried them under slats. And that's where they were found. Okay, so that's what's weird about it. But for Christie to be the star witness, he's the one who basically said, put the idea in their head about having an abortion, that he could perform an abortion. So that's why Timothy went to the cops and said, listen, this guy said he was going to do that. Guess what? He ends up being the star witness in this guy's trial and he gets executed. And one of the things he says, Timothy says to his sister, his sister comes to him and says, did you do this? And he says, I swear to you, I didn't do this. I did not do this. And he still got hung anyway. So I don't think he was totally blameless in all of this. He did have this history of being a not very nice man. And so that's why it wasn't difficult for them to believe this when he made this false confession. And like the article said, he was of a low IQ as well. So they found it easy to pin it on him. I do think he was probably there. He probably knew what happened. But Christy, being the manipulator that he was, said, let me take care of this. And then he totally flipped it on its head and became the star witness for the prosecution. Well, the whole story was that Timothy wasn't even in town when this happened. He went to go visit relatives and the relatives kept asking where his wife were, where, where's Beryl and Geraldine at? And he came up with all these different excuses. And finally, he got a phone call one night saying, hey, your wife's nowhere to be found. So he rushed back to the apartment to find his wife not there. And then I don't know. It's 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 it was a crazy story to get. And because he had a low IQ, they basically just pushed him and pushed him and pushed him. And he just finally said, yeah, I did it. I did it. And then recanted. So, guys, we'll get into this story a little more when we get back from this break. Hi, guys. We're your hosts of History of a Haunting podcast. My name is Carrie Hopper. And I am Archie Bayes. And we are a weekly historical and paranormal podcast that brings you the history and the hauntings of locations all over the world with barrels of facts, casks of humor, and boxes of wine. We take bad notes, can't do math, and words are hard. So grab a glass of wine and settle in. We've got some famous, infamous, and almost famous locations to tell you about and why they became terrifying places to visit. You can find us anywhere you find your favorite podcasts and all over social media at Podcast and HOAHpodcast.com. Stay safe out there because you never know who or what is listening. So Annie, guess what? What, Jay? I just got off the phone with Mike Diamond. You know, Mike Deli Meats. Deli Meats. Yeah, and he just told me that we have a Patreon set up. We do have a Patreon. 100%. Hot diggity dog. And we are so excited to be part of this Patreon with ParanormalWarehouse.com because guess what? You can get our podcast exclusively a week early before everybody else gets to hear it. And that's pretty sweet. Not just can you get Serial Spirits a week early, you can get all the shows that Paranormal Warehouse has to offer, plus all kinds of Paranormal Warehouse merch that is not available to the public. Patreon.com forward slash Paranormal Warehouse. Guys, this is where it's at. Live out your best quarantine days watching Paranormal Warehouse. You won't regret it. Alex King from the American Ghost Hunter Show, he just got a sweet 
Cereal Spirits tank top. And let me tell you what, his nipples do hang out of them. His nipples have never looked better. So become a patron today. Go to patreon.com forward slash paranormal warehouse. Get our show a week early with some other cool stuff. Hey there, I'm Erin. And I'm Heather. And we're the hosts of a weekly podcast called That Would Go Good with Vodka, where we discuss murder, mystery, and mayhem. We are based out of the lower peninsula of the Mitten State and do a lot of local stories, but are not strangers to traveling every now and then when we feel the desire to do so. We tend to be on the relaxed side of things and bring levity to darker situations at times. But if you give us a chance, we promise that you will always leave with a little bit of knowledge and interest in a crime that you might not have known about before. That would go good with vodka, available wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to Serial Spirits, the podcast. Christy, more empowered than ever after escaping the long hand of the law, continued his crimes, his next murder hitting closer to home than any other. In December 1952, Christy strangled his wife Ethel to death while she laid in their bed. Christy began concocting stories to explain his wife's disappearance, telling neighbors that she had gone to visit family, and conversely telling Ethel's family that she had fallen ill with rheumatism and he was penning letters to them on her behalf because she could no longer write. He sold all of Ethel's belongings and forged her signature to empty out all of their bank accounts. After murdering his wife, Christy went on a rampage, murdering three more victims over the course of three months. 25-year-old Rita Nelson was a prostitute, six months pregnant, and fell prey to Christy when he offered his assistance with another abortion. 26-year-olds Kathleen Maloney and Hectorina McLennan were both gassed, strangled, and raped repeatedly as they died. Christy decided to keep these victims closer to home, though, boarding them up behind a wall in his kitchen that he later covered in wallpaper. As the bodies decomposed, the smell became overwhelming, and in March of 1953, Christy fled the apartment. When the landlord and another tenant began renovating the kitchen, the bodies of the three women were discovered. Police later discovered the body of Ethel Christie, buried below the floorboards. Christie was apprehended just 10 days later, but, of course, he had logical explanations for the deaths of all the women. He stated that his wife had actually been a mercy killing, that he had strangled her because she was choking to death while eating and he killed her. He also described Beryl Evans' death as a mercy killing and said that the prostitutes that he killed were actually trying to harm him and he acted in self-defense. Christie's trial began in June of 1953, only being tried for the murder of his wife. Christie's defense claimed that he was insane and unfit to stand trial, but the judge decided that because he had concealed all of the bodies, he was able to differentiate between right and wrong. The trial lasted four days, and it took the jury just over an hour to convict him of murder and sentence him to death. Christie was hanged just two weeks later, on July 15, 1953. 
Investigations into Christie's murders after his execution led police to believe that Christie may have had more victims. Collections of pubic hair were found at the Rillington Place apartment that were determined as not being from the corpses found on the property. However, without any other leads or information, no further investigation into the source of those hair samples has ever been completed. After Christie's execution, an investigation into the execution of Timothy Evans and his alleged crimes against his wife and children began. During 1965 and 1966, High Court Judge Sir Daniel Braben reviewed the evidence in the case and stated that, while it was probable that Timothy murdered his wife, he was actually only tried for the murder of his daughter, stating that it was more likely that Christie had killed little Geraldine to prevent drawing attention to her mother's disappearance. That, along with the fact that Christie had been the star witness in Timothy's trial, were enough to decide that Timothy had not received a fair trial. In October 1966, Timothy Evans was granted a posthumous pardon for the death of his daughter. There was such debate over this case and previous executions in the United Kingdom that in 1965, execution was suspended and eventually abolished. In January 2003, the United Kingdom settled a lawsuit with Timothy's family, awarding them compensation for his death. The independent assessor for the Home Office stated publicly that, quote, the conviction and execution of Timothy Evans for the murder of his child was wrongful and a miscarriage of justice. There is no evidence to implicate Timothy Evans in the murder of his wife. She was probably murdered by Christie. End quote. So there you have it. England got it right back in the 60s when they decided, hey, you know, we we hung a bunch of people for wrongful convictions and we have the serial killer, the man who killed Beryl Evans, and he was the star witness at this guy's trial, and we killed him anyway. So let's go ahead and pardon him. I mean, how how would you feel if you were that family? Well, he's dead, so number one, it doesn't make any difference. But even in in this posthumous pardon, they say, well, Timothy Evans probably killed his wife. Let's just get that straight. But most likely, he didn't kill his kids. So it's like they were still trying to place some kind of guilt on him so they didn't look so totally guilty and incompetent. Like, we just hanged a completely innocent man who had nothing to do with this. Yeah, but so they justified as he could have been guilty. But they found he her body and right. she was strangled to death. So it fit his M.O. It fit his M.O. perfectly And he's the one who came and was the star witness, and he came and told cops. Cops interviewed this guy like three or four times, him and his wife, Christy and his wife, and they both said, yeah, 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 you know, they fought all the time, and he just kept going on and on and on about this guy. So he put himself in the story like most serial killers do. They put themselves out there and just make themselves the center of attention, and this guy fit the whole M.O. of it. So without a doubt, in my mind, he killed Beryl Evans. I mean... And just to be a spiteful prick, he went ahead and killed their one-year-old daughter, too. So that guy's a monster. I mean, a a big-time monster. And most likely with all of these weird, random hair samples that they found collected, they found these little trophies of pubic hair throughout this apartment. It's most likely that he did have more victims, but there was no way, especially in the 1960s, of connecting 
just this random pubic hair back to anybody else. So it's probable that there were other cases. The majority of those other women were prostitutes. They were people who were down on their luck that he targeted for that reason. It wasn't until he committed those murders close to home that he got busted. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I believe that there's probably a slew more of women. I mean, he did, I don't think he started this, well, how old did they say he was when he started his first? It was 1944 is when he, he started. I, I think he probably was doing it before. I mean, how many people do you think he killed in war? I guess maybe if he was in war and he was killing the enemy, that kind of fulfilled his need for killing for a while. So he was able to, you know, sustain that need by going to war. But he didn't fight in the Second World War, but he re-enlisted to do something else that had to do with the war. But what I find funny is that he, you know, had had could not perform unless it was with a prostitute. So there's some kind of issue there right away. And they, yeah, I think he confessed to saying that he killed his wife because of that reason. He could not perform and could not satisfy her. So he just was sick of her and just said, you're, you're dead. I'm killing you. Well, it's funny, too, when you talk about his method of gassing these women, think about this ailment that he said he had when he came back from war, this mustard gas injury that left him deaf and mute for like three years. They totally think that he most likely faked that. There could have been some long-term side effects. He never spoke above a whisper because he said it like damaged his throat and his vocal cords. But maybe that's where he got the idea of using poison gas to incapacitate these women because it incapacitated him in a way. Well, I mean, yeah, and that was the big thing they used in World War One was gas. I mean, mustard gas was a huge thing. Our buddy in the show, Boardwalk Empire, Mr. Harrow, I mean, he talks in a really kind of, you know, his voice is messed up in that because half of his face got blown half up. But he talks about, gone. but if he you, talks about the gas. The God, mustard if you gas. guys have never watched Boardwalk Empire, it was it's like one of the gems on HBO, like the best HBO series. I've watched it already. We're rewatching it again, and Shay and I have both fallen in love with this character named Richard Harrow, who was a war hero played by this amazing actor named Jack Houston that has my heart. I just love him so much. But that was Sorry, one of the big things. Track. They talk about the mustard gas. And I think maybe right. that wasn't, you know, like I said, maybe his substitute was seeing people die. And it just turned him on to see people choke to death on on gas. So he thought this is a, an easy way to kill people. It incapacitates them and I have complete control. Well, then and during Second World War, he leaves his job and goes into the war reserve police. Yeah. They completely overlooked his background of this violent history. And again, this is almost a way of satiating that need is by going out and, you know, maybe criminalizing these other people. God forbid police could ever criminalize anyone. God forbid. But I think, you know, he he had had a manipulative pattern since day one. And I mean, <laughs> since school, the guy was bullied so obviously he was oh, he can't hated do people. it Christy. can't do it Christy. I wrote that down. Can't do it Christy in quotation marks. I mean, imagine, you know, your whole life being told you can't do it unless it's with a prostitute. I think the fact that he could only perform with prostitutes was because of this disassociative disorder that he was probably never really diagnosed with properly. They never talk about any real psychological evaluations that this guy underwent at any time. 
During trial, they tried to claim that he was insane. And the judge just basically shoots that in the head from minute one because he says an insane person wouldn't have gone to the links to hide these bodies that he did. He knew exactly what he was doing. But I also think that maybe being in war, and we see it now, you know, it's really become a huge topic now when you see people come back from war. PTSD is a legitimate thing, and these guys do. 100%. They have this. And you know, these guys, these veterans from World War One, in the history books you read, they talk about how they spent months and months and months in a hole in the ground, just staving off raids and raids of the enemy coming to attack them. And they had to stay in this hole and protect what was behind them. And I mean, that's just psychologically just if you already have problems and you go into a situation like that, can you? it's just going to make you worse coming out. Our veterans now, even with the progressions in health care, especially mental health care that have been made, our veterans don't receive nearly enough care for what they see and what they are forced to do over there. And their suicide rate is so high, which is the most unbelievable, sad thing that, that I can imagine is that these men and women go over there and risk their lives, give their lives, and come back, and then some of them end up taking their own lives because of what they see and because of what they are forced to do. It's no wonder that these guys came back from war and snapped. Yeah, and you talk, I mean, I've talked to a lot of, I remember one time sitting at a bar in the town I'm from, Lancaster, Ohio. There was a, a bar that me and my friends used to go to all the time. It was right across from the fairgrounds. It was called the Fairview. I've you know, funny enough, because it sat right across from the fairgrounds. But I sat there one time and I was talking to this guy and he said, yeah, I was a, a Vietnam vet. And I was like, oh, you know, kind of asking him questions about it. And he just looked at me sternly, slammed his fist on the bar and goes, I don't want to talk about it. And it was just like, whoa, you know, I was like shocked, like, oh, OK, man, you know what I mean? But you don't know what they saw. And part of us is intrigued to see what they saw, but they don't want to talk about it. And I'm in no way... I'm in no way, you know, sympathizing with John Christie here, but I'm just trying to give you a little bit of maybe what's going on in this guy's brain because he was already messed up going into war and coming out of war. He didn't have that way to fulfill the need that he did in war. So he had to take it out on women. He had psychological issues even as a child because of the way that he was treated. And this was just his way of coming back, I think, and taking control of his life taking control of other people, overpowering them. It was his way to exert force to release his dark passenger, if you will, Dexter. And and that's just what he did in these crimes. And it wasn't until he murdered people that he knew that he got caught. And maybe, too, like, you know, being able to perform with a prostitute was, it was looked upon then as like a, a sinful thing to do. So he was doing something he wasn't supposed to be doing, and that gave him the excitement. And then having that control of killing women, as we see in a lot of serial killers, it's that whole situation that sexually excites them. It's not the act of sex itself. It's the whole buildup of this, I'm, I have control, I'm going to kill them. The act of seeing someone die makes these guys aroused, and that's, I mean, that's that's the whole sickness right there. So on a grander scale of everything, looking past just the crimes of Christie, this really changed, this shaped the way that justice is served in the United Kingdom. They put a halt to um, to the death penalty and then eventually abolished it altogether because of Timothy Evans and his um, false confession and his execution 
and what happened in the long run with this case and John Christie. Well, do you see what they said too? Do you see how quickly he was hung after he was convicted? Hanged. Two weeks. Actually, the the correct term is hanged. He was hanged. He was hanged. He was hanged. Two Sorry. weeks. Hung hung means something else. Right. I don't know how he was hung. Hanged. He was means hanged. You Two die weeks. From the neck. Two weeks, and that that's really quick. You know, our justice system it takes years and years and years, and sometimes it never happens. Most of them they will die. just die on yeah. death row in the United States, and that's now. because we have habeas corpus and all this other stuff where you can make all these appeals afterwards. But two weeks, I mean, that's nothing. That's they gave him no time. No there was time. no time, and they. But now, because of this case, the death penalty in the United Kingdom no longer exists. So that's the story of John Christie, the Rillington Place Strangler. So, Annie, you got any final thoughts before we get out of here this week? I just want to remind everybody that on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Paranormal Warehouse's Facebook page, we are doing Serial Spirits Live. We had had some amazing guests and stories. Several weeks back, Steve DeShavi, who is the co-star of The Dead Files, came on, and he gave me like an hour and a half interview. Steve DeShavi is a just a phenomenal guy. He's so down to earth. I got to meet him when I shot an episode of The Dead Files at a Lake Shawnee Amusement Park. And so we are going on there live Tuesday nights at 7 p.m., and uh, talking about true crime, talking about paranormal, we have some really awesome guests coming up in the next month. If there is anyone that you guys would like to see on an episode of Serial Spirits Live or a show that you would like for me to cover, please don't hesitate to drop us a line somewhere, Serial Spirits at AOL.com or hit us up on Facebook Messenger. Let me know. We are always open to suggestions. We love having you guys in there. It's a little different audience, and you get the chance to interact with us live, to chat, to talk to other uh, Serial Spirits lives and Paranormal Warehouse fans. Uh, we just we have a really good time with, and we appreciate everybody's support. So continue to go to the iTunes, leave us five star reviews, tell your friends, you know, to check us out. And as Andy said, same thing with the podcast. If there's something you want to hear, somebody you want to hear us have on, hit us up. You know, she said Facebook Messenger. You can also hit us on Twitter. We're all over, guys. So until next time, be safe out there and please take care of each other. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you when we catch you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Serial Spirits Podcast. Follow us on all your social media apps, facebook.com slash Serial Spirits, on Twitter at Serial Spirits. Listen to us on all podcasting platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you subscribe. Follow us on our mothership at ParanormalWarehouse.com. Become a patron today, www.patreon.com forward slash Paranormal Warehouse. Until next time, be aware and be safe.